Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Welcome to episode 93 of the Observer's Notebook podcast, the official podcast of the ALPO. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within this Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various system bodies, solar system bodies, and associated phenomenon, and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you do enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Observer's Notebook. If you'd like to join the ALPO, you can for as little as $18 a year. For more information, you can visit us at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find the ALPO and the podcast on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy or search for Observer's Notebook and you'll find us right there. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the podcast. And now... Episode 93 with Carl Hergenrother, and we're going to talk about what could be, well, maybe, who knows, a comet of the century. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, this is Tim. I just want to tell you that this podcast is originally about Comet Atlas, and Carl and I got together and talked about it. And as most of you know, it is no longer predicted to be what it was was about a month ago when we, re- we originally recorded this podcast. It has since broken up into little pieces. So uh, we're going to keep the original podcast. That's what you hear. That's what you're going to hear next. And then just recently, Carl and I got together again to do a little supplemental to talk about what happened to Comet Atlas. And also, there's another comet on its way, Comet Swan. So after the first part, when we talk about Comet Atlas and a few other favorite comets we had. Stay around because right after that, we're going to be the supplemental part of the podcast. Okay. Hope you enjoy it. All right. I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Uh, we have a return guest, one of the favorites of our listeners, Carl Hernrother. Welcome back, Carl. Thanks for having me again, Tim. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about the comet of the century. Yes. The, the, <laughs> The 10th comet of this century, and the century is only 20 years old. There you go. <laughs> uh, comet uh, 2019 YA Atlas. Y4 Atlas. Y4, I'm sorry. Y4, yep. yes. Yep. Y4 Atlas. That's right. Now, what's Atlas from? Is that is that a uh, sky survey or is that? Yeah. So Atlas is one of the NASA-funded uh, near-Earth asteroid surveys. You know, there's okay. quite a few. There's right. you know, Catalina, Mount Lemmon, uh, Panstars, and Atlas are kind of the Catalina and Mount Lemmon are kind of one and the same, different telescopes, but same group. So there's really three major near-Earth asteroid surveys that are active right now, finding the bulk of the comets that we find nowadays. And ATLAS, which stands for the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System, operates currently two half-meter F2 reflectors, which I can get a hold of some of those, (laughs) um, that are on mountaintops in Hawaii. And what this project does, which is a little different than the other surveys, is they try to scan the entire sky once a night. And their goal is really to find objects that are on an impact trajectory, something that could hit the Earth, you know, days to weeks out. Okay. But they also do a very good job, since they do go down to 20th magnitude and cover much of the sky, of finding a lot of comets, especially comets that are rapidly brightening and just coming into view. 
And so they, back in December 28th of last year, they discovered this comet, uh, 2019 Y4, on December 28th at 19th magnitude with their telescope on Mauna Loa. Now, I hadn't heard much of Atlas before this one. I don't Have they discovered a number of other comets along the way? or They've discovered quite a few, okay. a few dozen or so comets. In fact, uh, Y4 was their second comet that was discovered in December. They also discovered a 2019 Y1 which turned out to be related to Comet Liller, if people can remember. Liller oh, wow. was a nice binocular comet back in 1988. And uh, this new Atlas Y1 comet is actually the, f- the fourth piece of this Liller family. And that comet also became brighter than expected. And even though it's not that well-placed, it's really low to the horizon for Northern Hemisphere observers in the evening, it's about eighth magnitude as well. So they've got two nice ones that popped up in December and two that are related to older comets. So it's kind of a nice coincidence there. Oh, so what does Y4 look like right now? So Y4 looks like a big fuzzball. Okay. okay? Um, if you remember the last couple of years, we haven't had too many bright long period comets, but we've had quite a few nice close passes by short period comets, like a 46 P Vertinin, mm-hmm. uh, 252 P linear. We had 21 P uh, Jacobini's inner. And if you remember uh, 252P and, and uh, 46P, and even before that, there was Tuttle Jacobini Krasik and Honda Murkosh Pachaskova, they all look like big fuzzballs. Right. And so if you were observing with a large telescope or observing from a bright site, you might have only seen the inner part of the coma or not seen any of it. And so this Y4 comet is kind of interesting in that it has a huge gas coma. And I can't find another instance, mind you, I haven't exhaustively looked through all the records, but I haven't found another instance of a comet, especially a long period comet, with such a large gas coma that far from the sun. And it was about one, you know, one and a half to two AU from the sun this last month. But it had a coma that people were measuring at close to half a degree. And that corresponds to almost 100 times the Earth's diameter. Yeah, I saw on, I think it was on Facebook on some posted article that someone said, this comet is bigger than Jupiter. And I'm like, well. (laughs) Well, I mean, the nucleus is probably a kilometer or smaller. We don't have a direct measurement, but that's probably in the ballpark. But yeah, of course, with the atmospheres of these comets, which is effectively what a coma is, it could be Mm -hmm. larger than the sun for some of these really bright but it's a good headline. It, it, it is a cl- good clickbait. Right. Now, when does this be, uh, become closest to the Earth and reach perihelion? So what's interesting about it and why people are getting excited that this could be a potential, you know, a bright comet is because it does get fairly close to the sun. It gets down to about a quarter of an AU, 0.25 AU. And that's, you know, a quarter of the distance, a quarter of the sun-Earth distance. And that's pretty close. That's inside the orbit of Mercury. And quite often when comets get that close to the sun, they either get extremely bright or they disintegrate. And as we can remember, not too long ago, the last comet of the century, which was Ison, (laughs) back in 2013, did the latter. It disintegrated as they got close to the sun. Now, this wouldn't be classified as a sun grazer or would it? No, this is not. It it doesn't quite get close enough. Um, 0.25 AU is still pretty far from the sun. Uh, Sun grazer gets within 0.01 AU. Oof. Sun grazer, and sometimes they even have a class called sun skirters. They get much, much closer to the sun. Now, is this comet, is this its first time in? Probably not. In fact, it's on the same orbit as the great comet of 1844, um, designation uh, C1844Y1. And not to be confused with the great comet of 1843, which was one of those sun grazer Kreutz family comets like Ikeasaki. and was one of the, you know, probably one of the greatest comets of all time, this 1843 comet. This 1844 comet was discovered only a few days after perihelion at about 10th magnitude, which is pretty impressive because it was only 11 degrees from the sun. So that was a pretty impressive Mm. uh, observation there. And for the most part, it was mainly a southern hemisphere object. And as you'll see, Y4 after perihelion will be mainly, actually will be solely a southern hemisphere object. But that object was about zeroth magnitude. It eventually grew a nice, bright 10-degree long tail as well as a nice one-degree-long sunward anti-tail. Um, by the time it was observable in the northern hemisphere, which was probably about a month or two after perihelion, it had already faded, probably below naked high brightness. So the fact that this Y4 comet is on the same orbit as this 1844 comet uh, means that they're probably related. Okay. 
Um, we don't know, you know, it's possible the 1844, it doesn't look like the, the current comet was at perihelion in 1844. It seems to have a much larger orbit. It takes much, you know, we're talking close to a thousand years or more. So it's possible at a previous apparition, this current comet broke off from the 1844 comet, possibly. Or at some point, these comets were one in the same. And maybe they're a bunch of a family of comets, like the Croix Sungrazers, where, you know, geez, Soho has discovered thousands of them. And we've seen many that have been, uh, you know, spectacular comets. So maybe this is, you know, the first two of a family of atlases or 1844 comets that we'll discover over the next, well, probably a couple of centuries or so. Okay. Huh. Now, when when is the closest approach to the Earth? And you, you said it's, it's, it's best will be after perihelion, but it's going to be Southern Hemisphere, right? Yeah. So perihelion's on May 31st of this year. Okay. And closest approach to the Earth is roughly about that time. In fact, it's May 23rd at about 0.78 AU. So it's not exactly going to be between the Earth and the Sun at that time, but it's pretty close. Um, one of the nice things about that is that that means it's going to be at a very large phase angle. And the phase angle is the Sun-Comet-Earth angle. And when you get the extremely large phase angles, cometary dust actually preferentially scatters light towards you. Um, to kind of give you a real-world example, if you've ever seen you know, a beam of light coming through a window or looking at a you know, projector mm-hmm. projecting onto a screen, you, know, you can see little dust particles that are floating around in the projector beam. Ah, okay. Depending on the angle you're looking at, like if you're looking perpendicular to the beam, you don't see much. But if you're looking almost straight back up at the light source, you see tons of dust floating in that beam. And that's because of forward scattering. These dust particles preferentially, they scatter a little bit of light backwards in the direction of the sun and a lot of light forward. And so when you get to really high phase angles, which means it's, you know, the comet's within a, maybe 10, 20 degrees of the sun, of the, you know, just off the sun-earth vector there, observing line, you can get an enhancement of brightness. And that's one of the reasons why Comet West was especially bright, and even uh, Comet Vignaut, you know, one of the last great comets that we right. had back in right, 2007, right. had a three-magnitude bump up in brightness because it was at a really high phasing. That's part of the reasons why we could see it during daylight with our telescopes. So this Atlas comet will actually see an enhancement due to forward scattering. It might only be a magnitude or two, but that may be a magnitude or two, magnitude or two brighter than, you know, kind of the, the brightness models that we're currently coming up with. Yeah, I was looking at some light curves today that were published, and they're all over the map. Yes. I mean, it's really, I mean, everything from a minus negative four magnitude to, you know, like a two. So that's all in that range. Right. So what was what made kind of brought this comet to the forefront was that, you know, when it was discovered, it was really faint. It was 19th magnitude. And for a comet that faint back at that distance, and I think it was about it was around 3 AU from the sun at the time. That if it had kept that certain brightness, we would have considered it a runt of a comet. In fact, when it was first discovered, the first thinking was, oh, it's so small, it's so faint, it's going to definitely disintegrate as it gets close to the sun. This will be a fun one to watch disintegrate. Mm-hmm. And then from discovery up through sometime early March, it had a rapid brightening. And we do see comets that show this rapid increase in brightness. Quite often, short period comets do this. Sometimes Halley family comets do this. Like we had a comet last year, Stefan Otterma. A uh, 38P Stefan Ottomar comes around roughly every 30 years or so. Also had a rapid brightening. Of course, that one didn't get quite as close to the sun. So what happened was people saw this rapid brightening trend, and then they extrapolated it all the way to perihelion. Right. And so there were predictions out there saying that this object was going to get brighter than the sun. <laughs> <laughs> While mathematically possible, of course, <laughs> physically impossible. But the, right. math, the, the equation will give you that solution. As now, we're lear- as we're learning right now, in, in the environment we're living in, we got to work on the curve, and the curve doesn't always follow the prediction. <laughs> right, and humans have a you know a long track record of taking very short term trends and extrapolating them forever, for right. better or worse. And that's, that's what people were doing with the brightening of this comet. Now, other comets have also shown a pretty steep brightening to about you know one and a half two AU out, 
and then that brightening trend moderates and settles down into something a little more normal. I mean, Halley had that kind of break in its light curve, um, as well as McNaught, the 2006-2007 comet, and West as well. And so we were expecting at some point the brightening trend would slow down to, you know, a more normal value. Okay. Something more typical of a long period comet. And that trend has definitely slowed down in March. Unfortunately, and it depends on kind of what data set you look at and whose observations you believe, because this is a very big, diffuse object. So the magnitude that's being measured really is sensitive to sky conditions and what aperture you're using and what magnification and how experienced the observer is. But it is looking like it definitely has slowed down and perhaps maybe slowed down a little too much. I'm worried that the brightening has slowed down to the point where the comet hasn't shown much evidence of brightening intrinsically over the past couple of weeks. And the last time we've seen a comet do that inbound, and this was another comet that was sold at the time as a comet of the century, <coughs> was Comet Austin, which was mm. discovered back in 1989. And I remember mind you, one. Yeah, it was a nice comet in the spring of 1990. In fact, it was the first comet I kind of observed with any regularity back when I was in high school. But that comet kind of did this low fizzle all the way in, like it was intrinsically getting fainter. It wasn't disintegrating, but it was almost like it was shutting down very slowly as it, it rounded the sun. And I think it ended up peaking at fourth magnitude when the original predictions were about zeroth magnitude. Hmm. So what is the current magnitude? So right now, it's probably around magnitude eight. Okay. Um, most of the... Uh, most of the observations that you're seeing posted for Body Alpo or posted on the COBS, the Comet Observation site, are somewhere between magnitude seven and a half and magnitude eight and a half. And being such a diffuse object, it's really difficult to get an accurate magnitude estimate. It is. It definitely is. Yeah. And um, there are a bunch of people um, who have been observing it with CCDs with small focal length refractors and doing very wide aperture photometry on it. And they're getting similar results to what the, uh, the visual observer observers are getting so around magnitude eight ish okay so so we're still about two months two months out from closest approach too so so there's a excellent op op possibility that this will be an easy naked eye naked eye object what do you say yeah so it really depends on how quickly it brightens from here on out if it brightens at a typical rate for a long period comet and usually there's a when you look at the magnitude equation there is a 2.5 n log mm. of the heliocentric distance term. Mm -hmm. An n of three, which would end up with a 2.5 n of seven and a half, is kind of what you consider your average for a long period comet. If it follows that trend, we are possibly looking at a comet that might brighten up to third, fourth magnitude before northern hemisphere observers lose it. Okay maybe around third magnitude when it gets too close to the sun in the evening sky and we no longer can observe it. That could result in the comet brightening up to maybe first magnitude of perihelion, maybe zero if they're brighter, once you take into account the, uh, the phase angle, the, uh, the forward scattering effect. On the other hand, if this comet were to brighten more rapidly, say at an N of four, so it's a 10 log R, <coughs> which some people do assume as the old, as the uh, kind of your average long period comet term but current research is suggesting that that isn't really the case that's an overestimate but you will see people publish it then again you're talking about a comet that might be maybe gets up to second magnitude before we lose sight of it and becomes zero earth or negative first at perihelion now this comet really does pull an austin on us and really doesn't brighten at all intrinsically or even fades a little bit then we're maybe talking fourth fifth magnitude at best okay and even at perihelion, we're only talking about third magnitude. And that's third magnitude when it's 10 degrees from the sun or 11 degrees from the sun. So no one's going to see that. Of course, you never know. I mean, most comets that we now call great comets became great, great for reasons like the nucleus split. Right. At least the whole, like West and the Kiyosaki were good examples. They both split at perihelion or near perihelion and released a whole bunch of dust. And you had a kind of a burst of, of brightness there. Maybe that's what happened to the 1844 comet that this one's related to. Because it is interesting that that 1844 comet should have been discovered from the Northern Hemisphere. It should have been at least fifth, sixth magnitude 
for a month or so before it got too close to the sun to be seen. And 1844 was a time when there were many active comet hunters. It was all visual that at that time right. that there were many hunters. So the fact that it wasn't seen suggests that maybe this comet does come in rather faint and then becomes brighter later on. It's, I don't think we've ever discussed this part, but wh- why is it so difficult to accurately predict the brightness of a comet coming in? Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that comets all have different ages. When I mean ages, yes, they all formed at the same time when the solar system formed. <clears throat> but you have comets, like short period comets, that have probably formed around Jupiter or maybe further out, got kicked into the Kuiper belt, and then over time became centaurs, which means their orbits were around the outer planets, and it got kicked into the inner solar system. It may have spent thousands of years or tens of thousands of years bouncing around the inner solar system. And so these comets have been thermally evolved over time versus say a comet like Ison. Here was a comet that again, probably formed around Jupiter or Saturn back in the early days of the solar system, got kicked all the way out to the Oort cloud. And now for the first time in 4 billion years, three, 4 billion years gets kicked back into the inner solar system. So it has a completely different set of ice and volatiles on it than a comet that's been in the inner solar system for thousands of years. The ones closer to the sun that have been around, the really volatile stuff have already, has already burnt off, while these new comets coming in still have that. And that's why you, we kind of get a little bit of a head fake yeah. from a Kahootek or an Ison, where these comets look really bright when they're really far out. And that's just because they had these really volatile all this volatile material that burnt off at a far distance made the comet appear bright. And then when it got in closer to the sun, kind of the real comet showed up. Right. It was significantly fainter than before. Yeah. Kohotek is the first head fake. I really remember when it comes to comets. I mean, it was discovered what nine months out or something like that. Right. And it was, it was 10th magnitude or 11th magnitude or something. Like that. Actually it was even fainter. It was a photographic discovery. Uh, was it? So I think it was like 14th or 15th. Yeah. But still being that far out and 14, 15 magnitude, that was impressive. So, Oh uh, yeah. For the, for the distance that it was found at. I mean, yeah, that the, was hype, kind of the hype for that was amazing. Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. And the funny thing is also, and this is something to really be careful about is the initial hype was, Oh, it was going to be negative 10th magnitude, you know, comet is century or whatever. But then even when people pull back and said, Oh, it's probably going to be negative third magnitude. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? It kind of did get the negative third magnitude. It was an impressive comet. And if you were on Skylab, you could see that comet at negative third magnitude. True. A few degrees from the sun, like the astronauts did. Yeah. But from the ground, by the time it got a little further away, so the average person can actually see it under a dark sky, it was nowhere near that bright. And this Atlas comet has kind of got that similar predicament of, you know, the predictions, even if it, you know, does get the zeroth magnitude or negative one, like people are saying, that's 11 degrees from the sun. Mm-hmm. you're not seeing that under a dark sky. Maybe you'll see that naked eye if you've got a you know perfect clear sky with a you know a nice low horizon. Or likely, you'll need binoculars to see that, and then you're only going to see the inner coma, maybe a little bit of the tail. All right, so what can we expect? The best location, best time to look for the comet? So right now, and for most of the time prior to perihelion at the end of May, the comet is solely a northern hemisphere object. And the nice thing is it's a nice evening object, fairly high in the circumpolar sky. And so right after it gets dark in the evening, of course, once the moon kind of gets out of the way, so maybe this week and next week aren't the best weeks, but after that, it'll be pretty nice. You can actually see the comet mostly in the northern sky, northwest sky. Right now, it's kind of leaving the Ursa Major, that constellation that has the Big Dipper, and starting to approach some of the fainter constellations like Camelopardalus. As we start getting towards the end of April, beginning of May, the comet kind of starts, will get much closer to the horizon in the, the direction of the constellation of Perseus. So by like mid-May, it's only a couple of degrees from Capella, which is the brightest star there in Auriga, not too far from Venus, which will be shining in Taurus as well. And for us in the Northern Hemisphere, we pretty much lose sight of the comet about a week maybe week and a half before perihelion in the evening. Now, depending on how bright this comet gets, 
It's possible we might get a little shot of seeing it again in the morning sky right before the sun rises, but the comet would have to be probably brighter than the current predictions are saying. And when now, would you, that be? And that would be around that time of perihelion or something. Okay. Now, if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, your first chance of really picking up the comet is going to be around the time of perihelion. Okay. And then the time after that. Though it never really gets that far from the horizon, even when after the sky gets dark. So it's going to be a horizon hugger even for the Southern Hemisphere. And moving almost directly away from the Earth and the Sun, so it should fade pretty quickly as well. Okay. Wow. Okay. So best equipment, obviously binoculars probably. Yeah, especially for a comet that right now seems to be really gas-rich and has a large, diffuse, low-surface Bryce coma. Binoculars are the best. Um, it really does help if you have, you know, dark skies, which, of course, is more and more difficult to come by. And, of course, for a lot of us, you may not be able to jump in the car and go to a dark site because there's, you know, True. shelter at home rules going on as well. I am kind of hoping, well, one of the, you know, not going to say that it's a benefit, but one thing might be the skies might be clearer with less air travel. True. So you might have less cirrus, you might have less pollution, so you might actually be able to observe a comet, even a relatively bright comet, a faint comet. And you can still go outside. You can <laughs> still go outside, and that's the nice yeah. thing. You can still go outside, you can still observe. <coughs> the Just heavens haven't been canceled. Don't set up a telescope and have a line of people looking through it, though. Exactly. Well, this will be May, so who knows what May is going to be like. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Now, are there any other comets in the night sky? There are. In fact, there are two other comets in the evening sky right now. Uh, one we talked about a little earlier, which right. was that 2019 Y1 atlas, which was related to Comet Lillard back in the, the late 80s. So that comet was, you know, had just gone through Andromeda. It was moving northward, and it's currently in Cassiopeia and will be moving even further north into Cepheus, so it becomes a very much circumpolar object. Um, gets almost as high as plus 80 degrees declination. Oh. And that comet currently is around magnitude 8.5. Okay. Um, it is fading now, because it is past its perihelion, which was back in March, middle of March at 0.8 AU. But it'll be 8th, ninth magnitude object this month. And then there's our kind of long-running comet, uh, C2017T2 Panstars which has been bright enough for small aperture visual observers basically since the end of last year. And that comet comes to perihelion May 4th, though at a distant 1.6 AU. But it's around magnitude 8.5 as well. Again, northern part of the sky, Cassiopeia, it's going to be going through Camelopardalis, so it's actually not going to be too far from where Y4 is. So all three of these comets are kind of converging a little bit hmm. towards a, you know during this month. And that comet also will probably... Like I said, it's about magnitude eight and a half. It'll end up peaking around 8.2 or so and still be observable for the next few months before it dives south as well. So we do have quite a few you know, comets that are up there. And looking towards the future, there is a short period comet, uh, 88P Howell, which should also get up to eighth or ninth magnitude later on this year. And then there was a new discovery, another new discovery at the tail end of last year, which has just only recently been announced as a comet. Originally, it was announced as an asteroid on a cometary orbit. But C2019U6Lemon looks like it could also be an eighth or ninth magnitude object when it gets to perihelion around the June-July time frame. Right now, that's solely a southern hemisphere object. Okay. But for us in the northern hemisphere, it should become visible basically early July when it's still around eighth or ninth magnitude. Okay. Cool. So we have a few comets coming in this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's nice that we are getting a, little, a few surprise comets here. They aren't okay. all these giant ones discovered three years out. Right. It's kind of nice to have, you know, three months out. Ooh. And hopefully we'll get a nice visual discovery as well. Right. That's coming harder and harder. Now, out of all the comets you've seen, what's what is does one stand out to you? A lot of stand out to me for different reasons. Um, in fact, there's quite a few comets that I like and for various reasons. Um, I think Hyakutake was the best I ever saw, mm -hmm. you know, just sitting there in the middle of the, the Arizona desert at midnight, looking straight up with a tail that was, you know, 70, 80, 90 degrees long. Yeah. Something we'll probably never see again. That was huge. Yeah. It was absolutely amazing. Um, Hale-Bopp, I mean, mm -hmm. looking through a telescope at Hale-Bopp and see, I mean, 
all those pictures you see of the jets and the shells, right. that, that was all there in your yeah. eyes. And that oh, so vivid, close to the earth too. That's what really. Yeah. And the vivid colors. I mean, Hakataki had that vivid blue, but then yeah. Hale Bopp had that vivid yellow of the dust. Yeah. Which was pretty amazing. Yeah. I go back. Uh, the first comet I ever saw was Comet Bennett mm-hmm. in 1970. And I was in, I think it was a freshman in high school. And my science teacher talked about it. And I went, okay, it's in the morning sky. I walked out. I had a street light right across the street from my <laughs> parents' house. And it was right next to the street light. I could see it with the street light <laughs> in the sky. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> this mm-hmm. thing, it, it blew me away. Uh, that and uh, Kohotek, obviously, we mentioned in Comet West. Right. Comet West was probably the prettiest comet I ever saw. I've heard that from quite a few people who it's, have seen all these comets and said West was their favorite. Yeah, it's it will have the two tails. And it was just really... Mm-hmm. It was gorgeous. It was really a gorgeous comet. But we, we need something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm pushing almost 50 years old now, and I've only yeah. seen two great comets. <laughs> and I'm starting yeah. to work. Oh, I mean, not the, you know, running out of time, but <laughs> out of time. Need another. Yeah. Because the last two have been Southern Hemisphere only. Yeah, I mean, it's it, Bennett is what got me into astronomy. It really did. Mm-hmm. So that's why... My email address is Comet Man. I mean, because <laughs> I, I love it so much. That's it. It had quite the effect on me when I was, you know, a freshman in high school. So it's nice, amazing. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, I got interested in comets. You know, as my the favorite part of astronomy, even before I'd ever seen one. Yeah. Wow. And you know, I tried, and you know, I knew of our IRS Iraqi Alcock, but didn't know where to look. Hmm. And then Halley ended up being the first comet I ever saw. In fact, it ended up being the, the second thing I ever found in a telescope. First thing being the Pleiades. It's, it's interesting. When I was young, math was hard. I could <laughs> not do math. I couldn't relate to it in any way. Yeah. And I was reading, I don't remember what book it was, but it says, oh, you can calculate the orbit of, orbit of a comet because you already know the distance between the Earth and the sun and when you see it in the sky and the angle of it. And I'm like, really? So I did that and I'm like, oh, and all of a sudden the math light bulb went off in my brain. Mm-hmm. So it was nice. comets that really helped me with that too. It was interesting. Yeah. So like, big impact. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you have I mean, anything general, else like I to like, add? Oh, go on. Oh, I'm pretty much like anything in the sky that changes. I've noticed yeah, whether right. it's planets, variable stars, that's... asteroids, but comets are really the thing that I still just always oh. I can never get tired of. No, I've never seen two of the same. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing. That's, that's what I love about them. That's cool. And as much as I like the big bright ones, there are some faint ones that are kind of on my list of favorites and not quite sure why. Just some hmm. of them, like, you know, the fact that this comet is so big and diffuse really reminds me of another big diffuse gas ball from 1993, which, uh, McNaught Russell, which most people have probably completely forgotten about. Some yep. six magnitude comet, which also may or may not have been the great comet of 574 AD or a piece of the great comet of 574 AD. So a little bit of similarities with this Y4 comet, but that was one that also struck me as being really diffuse and low surface brightness and very gassy. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Love, love them comets. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so have anything else you'd like to add? So, you know, being at the Alpo, um, we're interested in all comet observations, not just the Y4, even though Y4 is kind of the, you know, the comet of the moment. But any kind of observations, whether they're images, sketches, an estimate of brightness, or even just, you know, a description of it, which is great. You know, I saw the comet, it was diffuse, had a tail, blah, 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 stuff like that. Yep. Just send it into the Alpo. You do not have to be an Alpo member to contribute. But we do appreciate it. We do appreciate it, and it is encouraged. <laughs> And there are ways to get more information, especially from the comet section. Um, of course, we have the ALPO website, which is www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we also have a forum on cloudy nights, which if you just look for ALPO Comet News for April 2020, I do a, a new forum for each I've night. noticed that. I've been over there and saw that. Yeah. And that way you can, you know, you'll get a kind of a, a summary of the comments that are observable for the month. And of course, you know, we have comments back and forth with updates and talking between the various observers as well. So feel free to, to, you know, click on the link, go to the forum and join in in discussion. Fantastic. Now in, in your real world job, mm-hmm. you work on OSIRIS-REx. Yep. Is there anything you can tell us? <laughs> so OSIRIS-REx, you know, it's a NASA funded mission uh, to go to a near-Earth asteroid named Bennu. 
and collect samples from this asteroid and bring it back to Earth. And we've been at the asteroid for, oh, geez, about a year and a half now we've been at the asteroid. And, of course, this asteroid has thrown so many curveballs at mm -hmm. us. It's rockier than we were expecting. We were expecting nice little patches of sand, almost like a beach in a way. It would be easy to collect a sample from. And it just boulders everywhere and rocks everywhere. And then it turns out this asteroid is actively shooting at us. That it's throwing off millimeter to centimeter sized particles on a daily basis. Sometimes in like shotgun blasts almost. Really? Particles at a time. I hadn't heard that. And so that's actually the uh, part of the mission, the part of the science I'm most directly involved in um, is observing. I discovered these, this, event, this phenomenon. And then I'm also trying to study it with a group of other people on the science team. And we're publishing a series of papers on this. The first one has already come out in science a couple months ago. And we're not 100% sure what the mechanism for causing these particle ejection events are. But it could be as simple as rocks fracturing just due to thermal cycling. They get hot in the day, you get cold at night. So you get contraction, you get an expansion and contraction of the rocks, and that's causing the rocks to crack and fracture, and that's throwing the material off. It's also possible that Bennu, since it doesn't have an atmosphere, it's way too small, is getting directly hit by micrometeoroids. Hmm. And those nice little, you know, Perseids, when you look out and you see, oh, there's a nice little zeroth magnitude Perseid you know, going across the sky. Well, when that smacks into your asteroid, that actually does throw off a few grams or a hundred grams of material at a time. And we see that as, you know, a cloud of these particles being thrown off. So right now at the mission, we are, we have selected two sites that we are considering to drop down and get a sample from. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a series of close flybys where we're getting down you know, within a couple hundred meters of these sites doing high resolution imaging as well as uh, spectroscopy of these sites. And the plan right now is to, once we've collected all this data, we have a primary site in the backup. It's a primary site, which is called Nightingale. That's kind of our internal designation for it. If that works out, we hope to collect the sample towards the later part of this summer. And then once we get the sample and it's successful, we kind of leave the asteroid and we start the long two, three year-ish journey until the samples are returned to Earth back in wow. September 2023. How exciting. Mm -hmm. This is a fun project to be on of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's like just discovering things like you're being shot at. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, so what, what's happening here? Yeah, and it was funny because we, you know, one of the first things you do when you approach an asteroid is you look at the environment of the asteroid looking for dust or satellites, anything that could be a hazard to the spacecraft, something you don't want to run into. Mm -hmm. And so we had all these observations planned out. And they're usually like the first science observations you do before you get close to an asteroid or a comet. And didn't find anything. Okay, so we gave it all clear. Yay, we're going in. And then we were already in orbit around the asteroid. And every two hours or so, we take navigation images just to make sure where the asteroid is, where the spacecraft is relative to the asteroid. And I was just flipping through those images at a meeting. So I was sitting there and I was flipping through the images and all of a sudden an image pops up and I see what looks like an open star cluster off one of the limbs of the asteroid. Now these images only go down to about seventh magnitude and they're about 30 by 40 degrees across. So it's a good chunk of sky. Okay. So, you know, I'm enough of a backyard astronomer that I can recognize most of the sky down to six, seventh magnitude, except for maybe the Southern Hemisphere. And very quickly, like, well, geez, that doesn't look like any star cluster I know. And then, you know, I pulled up Stellarium and said, okay, what's here? And it's like, there's nothing here. This is really odd. Uh, and then after digging a little quick, you know, digging a little more as I kind of zoomed out and noticed that the, the objects furthest from the asteroid were now trailed. And when you drew a line back, they all converged on a point on the asteroid. You go, ah, wow. something just happened. That's very and That cool. was an exciting few days. We had to figure out very quickly, oh, geez, this is a threat to the spacecraft. Yeah. Do we have to leave orbit? Which we didn't. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, it was a one-time thing. We'll never see it again. And then, of course, two weeks later, we saw it again. <laughs> now, are there certain regions that are active? Um, it's looking like it's – there are certain times of the day where okay. we see more activity. Okay. Especially towards the evening time, evening time on the asteroid. 
Unfortunately, because this asteroid is a retrograde rotator, um, evening makes sense for, you know, the rocks cracking due to mm -hmm. heating. That makes sense. It's all thermal expansion. Right. And, yeah. But if you're, you know, watch meteors, well, on the Earth, you see meteors preferentially in the morning. And that's because the morning side of the Earth is kind of like the front windshield of a car. That's what's driving forward in its orbit. Right. So it's sweeping up these meteors. Well, Bennu is a retrograde rotator. So it's actually the evening side that is moving forward. Oh. So unfortunately, we can't differentiate between the two mechanisms based on time of day because they both would preferentially occur in the evening. So huh. more to come, I'm sure. More to come. Yeah. And like I said, we're, we're publishing a whole series of papers. Or okay. submitted a whole series of papers. And that's just from the first almost year's worth of data. And we're continuing to collect data wow. now as well. So hopefully we'll know a little more before we have to leave the asteroid. Yeah. Well, after you guys do your sample, uh, we'll have you back on the podcast to talk about what you've learned between then and uh, then and now. Sounds good. All right. Well, Carl, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's always entertaining. Thank you, Tim. All right. Well, we're back again. <laughs> um, <laughs> we just finished the podcast. I mean, you all listened to that. We talked about that great comet of the century atlas. And by now you all know what's happening with that, but we have Carl Hergenrother with us again. Welcome Hi, back, Tim. Carl. <laughs> Thanks for having me on such short notice. Yeah, that's fine. We need to do this. That's why we have a podcast. So what do you think happened? Okay, so we know, I mean, there's a few things we absolutely know about Comet Atlas. One is that it's sharing an orbit with a comet that was seen back in 1844. In fact, it was the Great Comet of 1844. And now that we've got, you know, centuries of comet observations and discoveries, and of course, with the modern day surveys going even fainter and fainter, we're finding a lot of cases of almost, you can call them comet families, where a comet passed close to the sun a few orbits ago, and that could have been centuries or millennia ago, probably split. And what we're seeing in the case of this recent Comet Atlas object is that it was probably a smaller piece of this great comet of 1844 hmm. that split, not in 1844, but maybe the last time these comets came around. Okay. And quite often when you have these secondary components come by, they fall apart. They seem to be extremely fragile. Um, for those who can remember back about, oh, geez, I guess it's almost pushing 15 years now. Back in 2006, we had a uh, Comet Schwarzman-Walkman 3 come by. Mm -hmm. Right. Made a really close approach to the Earth. And back in 95, it had split into a bunch of different pieces. And in 2005, 2006, when it flew past, there was a you know, a, a stream of particles or pieces that you can see. Um, I think there were hundreds and hundreds of these components. And even though the main part of the comet survived, appears to still be doing well, all these smaller pieces either disintegrated as we were watching back 2005, 2006, or didn't show up again the next time the comet came around. So a lot of times when you have comets splitting and the component does survive long enough to come back around to the next perihelion, it usually doesn't survive. Okay. So like you said, th this comet Atlas it shared an orbit with another comet. Correct. So it was yeah. probably all one comet at one time then, right? Yeah, probably the, I mean, no one knows for sure because I don't right. think anyone's done the integrations and maybe we'll never know for sure. But most likely this comet, this component didn't split off the 1844 comet in 1844. It split off whenever the previous return was. Much, much, much earlier than that. Yeah, right. it's highly coincidental that the two comets share the same orbit. Right, and it is interesting that the comet of 1844, which maybe should have been discovered pre-perihelion when it was observable from the Northern Hemisphere, but wasn't seen until it was picked up a few days after perihelion, maybe the reason why it was so substantially bright after per, you know, at perihelion and afterwards was because it had split again, kind of uh, like what happened with Comet West. Okay. All right. So is it done or? It's not done, but it obviously is not going to become the great spectacle we were all hoping, or even the, the pretty good spectacle that I was hoping for. Right. What's its current magnitude? So right now it's sitting about ninth magnitude. Okay. So, so it's remember dim quite it, a bit. Right, right. So when it was discovered, it was about 19 or something when it was discovered by Atlas. And then it rapidly brightened. And going mm -hmm. into the beginning of March, all of a sudden here it was at you know, 9, 10th magnitude. 
And then sometime around the end of March, it kind of peaked out at around magnitude seven and a half, magnitude eight, and then it just stopped brightening. And then as CCD observers were watching it, you know, the inner part of the coma, that inner condensation around the nucleus started smearing out, becoming more and more of a trail. And over the last few days, that trail has actually broken up into a number of individual little nuclei. So this comet obviously experienced some kind of disruption, some kind of splitting event where it split into pieces. Um, there still seems to be the brightest component still seems to be located about where you would expect Atlas's nucleus to be. So maybe that is the largest remaining chunk. And the other pieces that are kind of streaming behind it are just smaller pieces that are falling back and slowly falling apart. So it does make you wonder if maybe that small remaining piece will continue to produce, you know, a coma and a tail or whatever going forward. But to be honest, I mean, since that comet peaked at around eighth magnitude, it's faded to about nine. Mm -hmm. And that was about two weeks ago. Remember, the comet is still, you know, dive bombing into the sun. So it's right. getting closer to the sun, getting closer to us. So it should be getting brighter. So the fact that it's kind of still fading somewhat, even in the last couple of days, there is some evidence of maybe it's starting to brighten again. But that's just brightening because it's getting closer to the sun and closer to us. Intrinsically, it actually seems like it's still fading. So hmm. going forward, my guess is that this comet will probably survive a little while longer. It may even survive, you know, for the next month or two. And it'll be interesting to watch it because we're actually going to watch a comet disintegrate in real time. True. And also disintegrate when it's fairly easy to observe. I mean, quite often when comets disintegrate, it's kind of like Ison did. You know, it was two degrees from the sun. Mm -hmm. you know, a little hard to observe that. But here we have an object that, you know, unfortunately with COVID-19, a lot of the big telescopes are shut down. Uh. Um, Hubble's still operational, and hopefully Hubble will observe it. But really, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's the amateurs who are stepping up and yeah, have to step true. up because they're the ones with the facilities that aren't shut down. Yeah, I think I saw a video on YouTube of the nucleus splitting up. You guys should see the, the trails and all, all of them fading right. back. It's pretty wild. Right. So even though this won't be a great comet, and that, of course, will disappoint mm -hmm. a lot of people, including the public, I mean, from the science side, this is kind of a front row seat of watching the disintegration of a comet, something yeah. that we haven't had such a we haven't had such a great view of since 73P Schwarzman-Walkman back in the 0506. And if you can remember back to 2000, 1999 S4 linear. Now, do you think it's going to survive perihelion? Well, if I had to put money down, which is stupid to do with comets, <laughs> I'd say no. Yeah, I, I agree. I, that's, yeah, because it's just it seems so volatile right now. Right. It, it has so much further to go and so much closer to the sun. And But it does, you know, beg the question, you know, we had that rapid brightening. Mm -hmm. And was that rapid brightening really a result of the comet splitting and breaking up? And it's released a whole bunch of, you know, a whole bunch of ice and volatiles that are freshly exposed to the sun. And boom, you had this kind of explosion of activity. And maybe that should have been the first warning sign that something was wrong. And that's why we love comets. Because you, you never know. And even something at a massive failure as this, we learn so much from it. And this one is such a head scratcher. Because yeah. prior to, you know, the middle of March or whatever, this thing had by far... As far as I can remember, my recollections, the largest gas coma in real, you know, in, in a real diameter when you right. actually, you know. Yeah, because that's what they were touting in the media, too. So it's huge. Yeah. And you go and you go, well, things, you know, comets don't usually have coma that large. And the ones that do seem to have really large coma are more of these Halley-type comet, Halley family comets. Now that coma's gone away. Mm -hmm. And it is a little striking that now when you look at the color images, it looks a little more like Ison, which does not bode well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Interesting. So, that being said, we have a new comet of the century. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It uh, should just be comet of the week. Comet. Of the, I think. <laughs> I think that's what we're going to start calling them. Yeah. Maybe for yep. the hour. I don't know. But comet Swan. Yeah. C twenty twenty F eight Swan. So this was a comet discovered by the SWAN instrument on the SOHO spacecraft. Okay. SWAN is the solar wind, and I'm going to botch the pronunciation here, Anisotrophes instrument. I believe actually, you. Uh, oh, which actually detects ultraviolet wavelengths. It's an ultraviolet imager. So it's really good at picking up the hydrogen coma of a comet. 
And of course, it's on SOHO, the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, which has discovered thousands of comets, though usually with its coronagraph that's looking very close to the sun. But this SWAN instrument is really good. First of all, it covers the entire, almost the entire sky. Hmm. And it's really good at picking up comets once they get brighter than about 10th magnitude or so. And so this one was picked up rapidly brightening over the first few days of April. Okay. Surprise, I mean, a real rapid brightening to the point where you have to kind of wonder, is this one also an outburst? <laughs> and it's also doing something weird. Like maybe it just had a splitting event. You know, so we'll have to watch this one pretty closely. Okay. Where's this one visible? So this one currently is Southern Hemisphere only. Okay. It's down in Sculptor um, at about negative 36 declination. But unfortunately, it's also fairly close to the sun. So it's south of the sun. So that's a problem for us in the Northern Hemisphere. It's about eighth magnitude. You know, nice gas coma, a little bit of dust production, starting to show a nice tail. Kind of looks like your typical, I call them lollipop comets, where you okay. kind of have the, you know, in the CCD images, you have the, the nice round blue-green, you know, candy part, and then the stick is just the tail. Okay. And so this object gets pretty close to the sun, not quite as close as Atlas, but 0.43 AU on, in, on May 27th of this year, and gets pretty close to the Earth at 0.56 AU about two weeks before perihelion. There's, like I said, there's two major problems with this comet. Problem number one is that it did brighten extremely rapidly in those swan images. And now that we've been following it for a couple of days visually, it doesn't seem like it's been brightening quite as quickly. So it's possible we, you know, witnessed the comet that was having an outburst. And so it's, again, kind of like Atlas, maybe giving us a little bit of a head fake as to exactly how bright it's going to be. A lot of people, if you, if you extrapolate the current brightness forward and assume your normal brightening trend for a comet, yay, it gets to the third magnitude at perihelion. Okay. But perihelion is only about 20, 25 degrees from the sun. Southern hemisphere at perihelion can't see the comet really at all. Northern Hemisphere, at the end of astronomical twilight, or the beginning of astronomical twilight, it kind of goes back and forth between the evening and morning sky at that time, it's only an elevation of five degrees. Oh, my. So even if it is a third, fourth magnitude comet, it's going to be pretty, you're still going to need binoculars to see it right. in a nice, clear horizon. And of course, if it doesn't brighten as much as we're expecting, it maybe only brightens a fifth, sixth magnitude. You won't see it at all. Maybe, yeah, exactly. Even binoculars, you might have trouble. Interesting. Wow. And then unfortunately, from that couple weeks before perihelion for a few months afterwards, you can't see it anywhere. It's just too close to the sun. So we really won't know what's going on until after perihelion. Well after perihelion. Well yeah. after, yeah. Yep. Oh my. Okay. I mean, hopefully I didn't check, but hopefully it's in the there's another like Soho, there's another spacecraft called Stereo which observes not only close to the sun, but also about 40, 50 degrees off the sun. And sometimes that you'll have a comet that you can't see from the earth, but it'll go through its field of view and you'll be able to trace it and follow it. Okay. All right. Well, anything else on Swan you want to mention? No, but there are a lot of other objects. Okay. And including a few uh, new ones as well. There's another object that's a Southern Hemisphere object, again, discovered by a spacecraft. It's a C2020F3-NEOWISE, <clears throat> NEOWISE being the, uh, the WISE spacecraft, which is the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, kind of the successor to IRAS, um, is still ob observing, trying to discover new comets and asteroids. And it picked up yet another very low perihelion long period comet, this hmm. one perihelion on July 3rd at 0 0.30 AU. Unfortunately, this object is pretty faint. Um, some people are reporting it maybe as bright as 13th magnitude now. I actually did get some observations with some of the eye telescope facilities, Southern Hemisphere, had it about magnitude 12. Okay. Even though this one might brighten up to about fifth, sixth magnitude, again, it's going to be too close to the sun to be seen. And being only a Southern Hemisphere object, we're not going to see it at the Northern Hemisphere until maybe around perihelion time when we'll pick it up. Okay. Assuming it survives. <laughs> I mean, intrinsically, it's much fainter than Atlas was in this new swan comet. 
So it's a possibility this comet may also disintegrate long before it gets there. But you never know. I mean, maybe after we get all these kind of letdowns, that's usually when you get one that surprises you. Right. When you, you let your guard down, you don't tell the public, you don't make a big deal about it, and then, boom, like after Kuhutek, you head west. Yep, that's true. That's true. Yeah, because the people are hesitant to call things the comet of the century after that because it's well they should you, never <laughs> call it the century i know i know it's just i've heard it for years <laughs> oh i know i know atlas was the comet of a generation yeah of a decade yep, yep. maybe okay cool we have any any other comets flying in we do um there's another right now only a southern hemisphere comet but in July, it will be visible from the Northern Hemisphere as well. And this is a 2019 U6 Lemon, discovered with the Mount Lemon Telescope just here north of Tucson. And this was an object that was discovered, oh, back tail end of 2019. and didn't show any cometary activity at the time. Even though it's on a, even though it's on a long period orbit, it has an orbital period that isn't extremely long. So it's obviously been around the sun multiple times. And this comet rapidly brightened, as some of these Halley-type or, you know, long-period comets with a few century orbits do. And it is looking like it could become a nice seventh-magnitude object in the June-July time frame. Again, mostly from the Southern Hemisphere, and then starting early July, more, it becomes visible in the Northern Hemisphere. So that one should be nice. Uh, Perihelion's 0.91 AU. And this one, since we did kind of possibly see the nucleus directly when it was inactive back at Discovery, is not a runt. It's a good-sized comet. So this one could actually be a, a nice oh, good. binocular object. Good. And in addition to that, there's actually two other comets in the Northern Hemisphere that you can see if you're out looking for Y4 Atlas. There's 2019 Y1 Atlas, right? which also is a component of something else. My goodness. Um, yes, there's a, now a family of... I guess you can say Liller family comets. There's four comets that share the same orbit. The brightest one, and we assume is the parent body, but you never know, was a comet Liller back in 1988, 1988 A1, which was a nice fifth magnitude binocular comet. I think I remember that, yeah. Yeah. And then there were two other components that we saw. There was a Tabor 1996 Q1, which was, again, got up to fifth magnitude and was nice mostly because it got closer to the sun than Liller, but then completely disintegrated as well. Mm. And then in 2005, there was kind of a faint comet, 2005 F3 Swan, another Swan discovery, which didn't get very bright. And I guess the jury's out as to whether or not it actually disintegrated. But this Y1 Atlas comet has been sitting around magnitude eight and a half. Um, and it's currently, it was a little close to the sun for oh, about the last month. But now it's actually moving through Cassiopeia, and it's a much better object in the morning sky currently, though the moon's still a problem there. But you can see it in the evening as well. And so it actually has been kind of cool, you know, seeing Atlas, and then the two Atlas comets, and there's actually a third comet, which is our old friend 2017 T2 Panstars, mm -hmm. all within about 30 degrees of each other, all there in that northwestern part of the sky. Okay. And not that difficult to see, either through a telescope. No, I mean, I routinely use my 30 by 125 binoculars. Yeah. They're basically five-inch binoculars. And they're all easy. They're all about eight and a half, maybe ninth magnitude for the uh, Y4 Atlas Comet. Great. Well, this sounds good. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I wish it was yeah. better than this. If any of these do anything spectacular or any little bumps in magnitude that you think we need to talk about, please let me know and we'll have you back on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's kind of interesting because when we, you know, did that uh, Comets of 2020 podcast, it was right. kind of, you know, a little bit of a bummer because there just mm -hmm. wasn't a lot going on. And then so many objects have been discovered, especially the latter half of 2019, early 2020. That's true. We had Iwamoto, which was yeah. a C2020A2, which did get up to 10th magnitude. Again, a little bit of a surprise comet and then rapidly faded. So we're getting a lot of these objects being discovered you know, only a few months before perihelion and kind of surprising us a little bit for good or bad. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, Carl, once again, buddy, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you. And it's a pleasure. We'll talk to you again. Will do. All right.
All right, well, that'll do it for this basic two-part episode of The Observer's Notebook with Carl Hergenrother. I hope you all enjoyed it. We upload a new episode of the podcast on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, and um, Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month where you'll receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the two producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and our brand new producer and person donating at $35 a month level, Michael Moore for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much, both of you. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the ALPO is in the show notes. You can contact me with comments at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is that you all have clear and steady skies and be safe out there. Thank you for listening. <laughs>